This audio drama contains themes and descriptions some listeners may find disturbing. Content warnings for all episodes are available in the show description. This is English Touring Theatre's Fucked Up Bedtime Stories for Adults. A series of strange stories for stranger times. Milky Drinks by Tim Crouch When her fury at the captain's knighthood had finally abated, when they'd taken her friend Maeve's body to the mortuary, when Dennis's alarm had stopped bleating through the corridors, when they'd been round with the milky drinks. That's when the idea came to her. In the morning, she took an old plaid skirt from a chest of drawers. She buried her face into it, and a memory flashed of a day out with her son. She reached under the bed for her sewing basket and set to work. By lunchtime, she was unhappy with the first result, which she put to one side. Lunch was cottage pie. That evening, the news came from upstairs that Philip was dead, and that Pam would not be far behind him. It seemed to have swept through the third floor like a stiff broom. When someone died, their room was deep cleaned and their clothes were disinfected, washed, and bundled up in bin bags left by the fire exit near her room. She took to rummaging through these bags and taking things that caught her fancy. Pam's faded pinafore dress, Philip's lovely blue cotton twill shirt, a distinctive Jaeger blouse that Maeve had worn at the Christmas party. Within a week, she'd made twenty of them. Each one took concentration. She had no natural aptitude, no pattern to work from, and her fingers were thickened by arthritis. Celeste offered to bring in fabrics for her. Celeste's family were Ghanaian. They had no shortage of bright materials. That's very kind, she replied. I'll manage. The next day, she learned that Celeste was showing symptoms and had begun to self-isolate at home. A number of women along the corridor offered to join her, she declined their generosity. She was not a sweet old lady. In the days before the virus, she would often eat alone in the dining room or sit in the conservatory with the paper. She would be 90 on the 27th of the month, and she planned to have 90 made by then to match her years. For the nurses, she said, and the carers. For the ones who had given so much. At the beginning of the second week, Dennis died. Dennis was on the ground floor, like her. At least his alarm would now be silent. She had admired Dennis. He was only 78. It was a crime that his family weren't able to be with him when staff were in and out, back and forth, wearing protective equipment they'd bought off the internet. 
Within two days, she'd made six from Dennis's old tweed blazer. There were fifty of them now, in an assortment of fabrics and patterns, and word was getting out. The woman who ran the home, Vanessa, paid her a visit to see if she wanted to talk to a local news reporter who'd been sniffing around. Vanessa stood stiffly at the threshold of the room, a handmade clear plastic visor clamped over her face. She looked tired. It was hard to understand her muffled inquiry. No, she replied, snipping a thread. Nothing. No publicity. Nothing. Despite her insistence, the local channel still mentioned her in a roundup of inspiring regional stories. There was a rumour that Celeste had died in hospital. Celeste. Celeste, who would sing to her as she washed her hair. She persevered. There were seventy of them now, in two shoeboxes beside the bed. Max, her community health worker, said that he'd make sure they went to the right people. The nurses and the carers. The ones who had given so much. The food they served at the home was never the best. But now... It seemed to her to have lost its flavour entirely. When his car had dropped him off at the side entrance, when he'd been through the metrics with Ginny, when he'd checked with his team on WhatsApp, when he'd understood the optics, when he'd washed his hands, when he'd calmed his hair when he'd finished his latte when he'd organised his papers when he'd checked his jacket pocket that's when he stepped onto the podium and addressed the hall he never felt adequately briefed no politician ever did but A good education had given him the confidence to ride out most situations with a combination of charm and generalities. He sensed that this occasion would be no different, but he also knew that he had a trick up his sleeve, as did all his colleagues who were rolling out new regulations that day. The government were now being crystal clear on policy. At the start of all this, they'd stated that science did not support the claim that widespread use would have a significant impact. Now, it would be mandatory to wear them in confined spaces, in shops, and on public transport. Government critics thought this decision had come far too late. There was condemnation over mixed signals and weak leadership. It was his job, as part of today's campaign, to convey the message and to reassure the public. Throughout the country, he said, good citizens have been doing their part to support the war against the invisible enemy. His well-oiled rhetoric obscured a well-honed misdirection. He spoke about one tireless ally in the battle, an elderly care home resident who, despite her age, had taken it upon herself to do her bit like those wartime housewives who sent their pots and pans to be melted down into planes, this redoubtable character had cut up her own clothes to protect the key workers. He reached into his jacket pocket and produced what was unmistakably 
a rectangle of Dennis's tweed blazer, pleated, hemmed, with elastic straps. He named its maker, insisting that she should be honoured and remembered. He said it was his sad duty to announce that, tragically, the day before her 90th birthday, she had lost her own private struggle with the virus, and that what he held in his hand was a testament to a life dedicated to others. With a flourish uncharacteristic of this guarded junior minister, he placed the cloth across his nose and mouth and pulled the straps behind his ears. He attempted to inhale. From the perspective of someone at the back of the hall, it looked as though he then began to dance. When the private ambulance had driven away from the care home, when she'd sanitised her hands, when she'd uploaded the home's latest figures to Public Health England, when she'd made herself a milky drink, that's when Vanessa switched on the television in the empty lounge room. The Secretary of State was speaking. She was telling an inspiring story. She presented a rectangle of Jaeger print, unmistakably from Maeve's beloved blouse. The audience applauded. She placed it over her mouth and nose and pulled the elastic straps behind her ears. She attempted to inhale. At once, the face mask flexed, contracted and tightened like a vacuum sealer. She grasped at it with her manicured fingers and tried to peel it off. The more she struggled, the tighter its grip. Her body contorted, bucked and convulsed. Her complexion flushed. Her eyes began to dilate. A trapped sound came from her throat. She clung to the lectern. Her well-ordered hair loosened and flailed. The journalists in the briefing room were slow to realise what was happening. She was drowning, in no water, in front of them. Her aides took action. The room broke into a chaos of noise and frantic gesture, scrambling at the mask, calling for assistance, screams and shouts. The Secretary of State's kitten heels could not hold her, and she jerked to the floor, the sinews in her neck straining, her ribcage heaving pointlessly, the agony of asphyxiation. There was nothing they could do to help her. When her movements had stopped, a first aider made a hopeless attempt at CPR. Nothing. The community health worker, Max, had been approached by a PR company about the face masks. The government had been looking for an angle, they said. These things would become a symbol of hope. A series of announcements, new rules about protection, speeches up and down the country, from the PM and department heads to junior ministers. Ninety of them. From Plymouth to Carlisle. No one could question the government's dedication.
Story read by Amber James. Directed by Jennifer Baxt. Music, sound and editing by Max Pappenheim. An English touring theatre production.